efforts represent for sure. Romans chapter 5 this morning, Romans chapter 5. As we remember the fallen heroes, as we've stated so often this morning, that have given us our national and personal freedom, uh, we want to remember uh, our divine fallen resurrected hero, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has granted to us our spiritual freedom. We seek to do that formally at least once a month, the fourth Sunday night of every month where we have the Lord's Supper, communion. We remember the Lord's efficacious sacrifice for the whole of our sin. And so we conclude this first major section of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, by discussing some concluding remarks about the blessings of justification. For those of you who are guests this morning, uh, justification is something that God does to us and for us the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. Often this is a big word that many of us aren't even familiar with when we first turn our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is something God does for us. What he does for you, he doesn't make you righteous. He declares you perfect in his son's righteousness, in the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness. And last week, Pastor Mike very well explained for you three particular fruits of justification, having been declared righteous by God in Jesus Christ. Peace, hope, and love. This morning, we conclude chapter 5 by highlighting for you some very interesting particulars of the contrast between the fallen and the righteous. Not just the contrast between the fallen and the righteous, but individuals who in particular introduced to the human race sin, and another individual who introduced to the human race Perfection, God's perfection in himself, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The first word here in verse number 12 tells us that Paul's about to conclude this whole first section of the book of Romans. So the next time we're together, we'll begin chapter 6, which is the beginning of the second major section of this book. Therefore, therefore, Alva J. McLean in his commentary said that a constant reading of this particular passage of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, under the leadership of the Spirit of God, never fails to bear fruit. And I'll have to admit to you, you're probably going to want to leave this morning and go home and reread this particular immediate context multiple times in order to completely understand it. But every time you read it in your personal devotional life for the rest of your life, more fruit will emerge, more blessings will emerge as your reading is governed by the Holy Spirit. And it remains a tremendous blessing to us. Really, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is kind of like a chorus of a hymn that we would sing. We would call the chorus a refrain. We sing the stanzas of a song, but then the refrain of that particular hymn are always the same words underscoring the various information and truth that we sing in the stanzas. 
This particular chorus, really, this refrain often read and mentioned at the conclusion of this first section of the book of Romans reminds me of a hymn that we sing often here called Complete in Thee. The words of the first two stanzas are read like this, Complete in Thee, no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and I am now complete in thee, yea, justified. O blessed thought and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Now for the sake of time, I'll refrain from reading the second stanza. But we love that song, don't we? We sing that song with certain resilience and energy, don't we? Complete in thee, yea, justified, O blessed thought. Justified, O blessed thought. On this Memorial Day weekend, you will hear over and over again an allusion to Scripture. No greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his brother. And that's true particularly for us as a nation, isn't it? It is primarily true for us spiritually. Whereas the ultimate human sacrifice has purchased for us our national freedom, so the ultimate divine sacrifice has purchased for us perfection. Perfection and a right standing with God that would grant us audience with him to allow us to enjoy his presence for all of eternity when we breathe our last on this earth. No greater love could heaven offer than the sacrificial love of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this brief passage summarizes for us continual blessings of justification. Would you read with me this passage? Now, again, I encourage you to reread it multiple times sometime this week to allow the truth of this passage to continually emerge and bless your heart. We're going to read this passage divided into four simple sections and then continue on this morning. Therefore, the beginning of the conclusion of this first section, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more. And you'll want to underscore that word, those two words, much more. You'll see those again in the text. Much more did the grace of God, and you'll want to underline the word grace here. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For for on the one hand, the judgment arose from the sin or transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned, through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace, there's that word grace again, and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. 
So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as many as were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace, there's that word again, abounded, and there's that phrase again, all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace, a final mention of that wonderful word to us, would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to notice a few things here before we get into our outline um, this morning. Um, I want you to notice there's a key idea here in verse 16. McLean points out for us a key idea. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Understand that when Adam brought sin into the world, it was through a singular transgression. But the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Adam brought sin into the world through one sin, but the death of Christ covers all sins. On your own time, I would encourage you to go back and underline every time the word one is used. You'll find that word one in reference to two people. One, Adam. The other one, Jesus Christ. And you'll find that word one utilized in reference to Adam's singular sin and Christ's singular act of ultimate obedience on the cross in death for our sin. On your own time, I want you to go back and find the word reign again. Find the word reign. There are four kings in this passage, if you will. Four kings, McLean points out. Death reigns, therefore sin reigns. Or sin reigns, therefore death reigns. Grace reigns. The grace of God reigns. And as a result of that, someday on earth, believers will reign. Believers will reign. You'll find six different contrasts in this passage Adam is contrasted to Christ. Disobedience is contrasted to obedience. Sin is contrasted with righteousness. Law is contrasted with grace. Condemnation with justification and death with life. There's learning in these contrasts. And we'll try to make those contrasts simply understood this morning as we continue on. Another aspect of this passage that I think it's good to remember as we move on. Christ's work is as deep as the work of Adam's sin only to human favor, to human spiritual favor. Christ's work is as deep. You'll notice the phrase, even so, in your own reading. Even so, in verses 18, 19, and 21. Whereas Adam brought sin into the world and it affected all people, 
Christ's act of righteousness on the cross also gave equal opportunity for all men to be saved from that sin. Very simple. But it's not only equal to the task of um, counteracting the effects of sin, which is death, giving us his righteousness and his life, Christ's work is greater. It's not only contrasted in comparison, but it's also greater. You'll understand by reading verses 15, 17, and 20. Again, that's why I had you underline the phrase, much more, or so much more. When Christ's singular work for all of our transgressions is compared to Adam's singular work of one transgression, what Christ offers is not only equal to, but much greater than the effects of Adam's sin. And the grammar of the Greek text really says much more exceedingly or exceedingly much more. What Christ is able to do to um, counteract the effects of sin in our lives has an eternal influence. Uh, And we'll see that here as we continue on. I'm going to give you a four-point outline really quickly if you like to take notes, and we'll move through this. First of all, verses 12 to 14. We're going to briefly talk about the death process. Now, uh, for the Roman believers who are faithful believers, um, this particular text is not written uh, to teach them about this death process. They already knew that, and they already knew that because they saw their need to trust Christ. Uh, This is a refrain, remember. Uh, This is a chorus, if you will. This is an opportunity for us uh, to remember, as it was for the Romans, what they were, but what they now are in Jesus Christ. But it's a review of the death process. He quickly moves forward to verses 15 to 17, where we find a contrast between Adam and Christ, a contrast between Adam and Christ, and then verses 18 to 21, we'll find a comparison between Adam and Christ. The death process first, a contrast, then a comparison, and then we'll conclude in verse 21 with a reminder of the life process. The death process, a contrast, a comparison, and then what is the life process. I would encourage you, as I always do, to get as many commentaries as you can and study along with me these passages. If you've done that, you will find that many of the writers that analyze this passage of Scripture and give us great truth about it come up with very simple conclusions about the passage that are very synonymous. As a matter of fact, if you go back through, I changed the first and the fourth point, but most commentary writers will divide this passage into four sections. All of their points sound amazingly the same. So it's not a hard passage to understand. It just takes some time to meditate on it. Uh, But after you meditate on it, we come away with some very, very refreshing truth uh, by way of reminder. Let's talk about the death process found in verses 12 to 14. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to read and learn about the dart frog of the Panamanian uh, jungle. The dart frog of the Panamanian jungle. This is one of the smallest but deadliest creatures in that jungle. It's only found in that jungle. Their venom comes through a life cycle in the jungle. Plants eaten by insects, which are then eaten by this small dart frog, 
gives this frog its venom. So little baby frogs are then born with the venom in their system. They are tiny in size, but that does not mean they're tiny in poison. Their venom leaks out onto their pores of their body and then onto their skin. They are very tiny, but they're very visible. They're luminescent in a reddish-orange color and very easy to spot, even from a distance. There's no need for camouflage because any creature that eats them, regardless of its size, will die. When I read that story, or that description about the dart frog of the Panamanian jungle, I thought about Romans 5. By the very nature of what man is, sin has come into the world, and death has continued to be in the world because of the sin of one man. Man in his very nature, in his very nature, is an enemy of God because of sin. But we know the good news. God sent Christ to restore that which God really originally intended. But by our very nature, we have been born in sin, and that's been handed down from our parents. Even Pagan writers such as Blaise Pascal understood the human nature. He said this, human beings are the glory and the garbage of the universe at the same time. With one hand, we create beautiful things, and with the other, we can violate all that is good. This is the death process, as simple and clear in this passage. The text says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that this death process began with one man. Death process began with one man. Just as through one man, sin entered the world. See that word entered? The original Roman here of this phrase would have understood this as something coming through the front door of everyone's life. Sin has come through the front door of everyone's life. And then it says here, there's death through sin, so death spread to all men. He continues the grammar that the Roman here would have understood. Death's come in the front door, and like the death angel of the Old Testament in Egypt, it has crept to every room and into every soul in every house. And so there is death because of sin. My friends, is death natural to the human race? I would tell you it's very unnatural to the human race. That's why it's our final enemy. God never intended the human race to experience physical death. He never did. Right. That's why it's so agonizing for us to not just personally go through it in time, but to watch our loved ones and friends experience the same. I was recently having the opportunity to witness to one of my son's schoolmates and to thank the Lord uh, during that discussion. Uh, she came to know Christ as her Savior a week ago Friday. Um, but in grasping this reality of how all men can be under the sentence of death because of their sin, um, I used this illustration about um, graveyards. I asked her, why are there graveyards? Can any culture ever dismiss death from itself? She said, well, no. I said, so there will always be graveyards. And she said, yes. 
I said, will you die someday? And she said, yes. I said, that's just a testament that sin came into the world through one man. And she said, well, I didn't sin. I said, but you have sinned, right? And she goes, yeah. I said, so if Adam wouldn't have sinned, I'm certain that you would have. And the same for me. Death is upon all men. Just like the venom of the dart frog, it's passed down from generation to generation, and it's certainly part of our nature, and it cannot be dismissed. But he goes on to say here some pretty interesting things about sin. It came in the front door. It went into every room, and so death spread to all the people in the house. But then he says in verse 13, for until the law... Sin was in the world. All that phrase says is, by the way, he's speaking probably now by way of reminder to those who grew up as Jews, but were now part of the Roman church. For those of you who are thinking that there was no such thing as labeled sin until the Mosaic law came around, uh, don't forget, it existed long before the law. Adam brought it into the world. But sin, it says here, is not imputed when there is no law. All that phrase is saying is that when the law finally did come into the world after sin had been in the world for generations of time, it was like putting gasoline on the fire. When the law came, it truly showed both religious and irreligious people that they were all under the sentence of death and it had creeped to their own bedrooms too. That's all this text is saying. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from where? long before the law, from Adam until Moses. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. You know what that simply means, folks? What was the likeness of Adam's sin? Adam had a direct, verbal, potential, face-to-face confrontation with a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ who said, you don't eat of that tree. He had a direct command from God. And he failed. So death came into the world. But there was other people in our culture who might say, well, I did not sin like Adam sinned. I never knew the Bible. I never knew any direct command from God. So how can I be responsible for my own sin? And what Paul's telling them by way of reminder here is this. Even though you didn't have a direct command from God, you're still under the sentence of death. Because all have sinned. It's part of the nature of being born into this fallen human race. And then it says here, Adam is a type of him, capital H-I-M, who was to come. So this little section about the death process is really the beginning of the description of the life process. Adam, by one act of sin, brought death into the world. But, is the good news, verse 15, the free gift, the free gift is not like the transgression. Understand, notice here the singular word transgression. For by the transgression, singular again, of the one, that's Adam, the many died, death came to every bedroom. Now the contrast, much more did the grace of God And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. 
Well, we're moving on now into verses 15 to 17, which tells us the contrast between Christ and Adam. I believe McLean gives for us here uh, several clear uh, points or aspects about this contrast. Would you write these down if you take notes real quickly? First of all, there's a contrast in quality. Secondly, there's a contrast in quantity. And then finally, there's a contrast in certainty. Quantity, quality, and certainty. What's the quality? The text, and I won't go back and read it all over again, but within this particular uh, immediate context of verses 15 to 17, it says, much more will the grace of God abound to many. Adam's one singular transgression brought death into the world, but because of the grace of God, Jesus Christ is able to save all who have sinned. Not just one sin of ours, but all of our sins. It's a contrast in quantity. You'll notice in verse 15, again, the singular use of transgression. You'll notice in verse 16, the phrase many transgressions, plural. Verse 17, you'll notice the qualification of the contrast of quality or, or quantity again in verse 17 where it says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. It would be good for you just by way of moving through here to underline the word receive too. Because righteousness is just not a state of being of people who know the truth. It's a state of being of people who have accepted the truth. And that word receive is really axiomatic to this whole text as well. So it's a contrast of quality, much more. It's a contrast of quality, quantity, not just one, but many. The idea is this. One forest fire can be intentionally set by one match by one person, right? And we've seen that. One match, one person can destroy, be responsible for destroying thousands of acres. But have you ever seen one person come in and put out the fire set by that one match? Usually it takes fire departments from multiple states to come in and set, and put that fire out. What this context is saying, Adam's one match, his one sin, has set a fire in everyone's forest. But there was only one person who was capable of coming in and putting it out. And that's Jesus Christ. There's a contrast of certainty here. That's found in verse 17 that we've already read. Much more those who receive, intellectual to volitional, the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. There is no reign mentioned here for the fallen who reject Jesus Christ. They will not reign in eternity. What is mentioned here is condemnation and death. But for the believer... I believe the Apostle Paul speaking here of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign that will be God's own elect responsibility in time to come. 
the contrast between Adam and Christ. What about the comparison found in verses 18 to 21 as we conclude this morning? This is a very, very short point in these three verses. The comparison between Adam and Christ. Both had one act. Both were performed by one man. While the unbeliever who rejects Jesus Christ will never have an earthly reign, they do have something reigning over them, and that's death. But for us, righteousness not, will not only reign positionally, but practically and someday politically. And write that down. I believe it's all in reference here when it talks about the righteous will reign. It's reigned in our heart positionally. We've been declared righteous. Practically, now that we're saved, we, our lives change. We start to live righteously. And then politically, there's going to be a time on earth where we reign with Christ for a thousand years. One act, one man, one reign. So what about the life process? What about the life process? There is a um, very decorated World War II veteran in our community. He's in his 90s. He's been to church here a number of times. His name is Bob. And recently at a local high school military induction ceremony, he had a little two-minute speech that he gave to the high school fellows going into military service. And it was, it was so wise. <laughs> Isn't that what what's the age can do? Uh, age is so wise, it can put the great truths into few words. Uh, he said this in addressing the military inductees. When you arrive at boot camp, you will be a stranger among strangers. When you go to your stateside placement of continual training, you will again be a stranger among strangers. If eventually you are deployed to foreign soil and into a battle zone, when you arrive with other servicemen and women, you will no longer be a stranger among strangers. You will not see color. You will not see varying religions. No political party will matter anymore at that particular that moment. At that moment, you are all one people. You are Americans fighting for the freedom of our country. And I thought about that speech in relationship to our final point now, the life process. In Jesus Christ, when we come into this room, we are no longer people of color. We're no longer people of creed. We're no longer people primarily defined by culture. We're no longer people defined by political influence. We're people defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous. We are a family. We are a one people in Jesus Christ. And this is indeed the fruit of the life process. What is the life process here? Throughout, peppered throughout this short passage are these words. One name in these words. Christ. His righteousness. His obedience, when accepted by us, we receive his righteousness, we're able to live obedient lives, we're justified, and in some time we will reign. Christ, righteousness, obedience, life, justification, and reign. As compared to Adam, whose disobedience was sin that brought death an eternal condemnation. But we celebrate the life process. This morning as we conclude this first major section of the book of Romans.
But I want you to highlight again in your Bibles the word grace. It's mentioned here more than a handful of times, or about a handful of times, the word grace. One author pointed out, with all the words that are able to be contrasted in this context, this is the only word that has no contrast. Because you cannot contrast the word grace. Whereas sin brings forth death, and death is deserved because of our sin, grace is something given to us that we don't deserve. Grace is a gift. Jesus is the gift. And when he's received, we own his righteousness, his obedience, and his life, and someday his reign. I'm reminded of the hymn that we love to sing, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount are poured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? We can look. There is a flowing crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. And now does it finish? The refrain, just like this passage, is a refrain for us. Grace, grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. God's grace is greater. And we enjoy it as we remember back to his sacrifice today. Let's pray together.